Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. All right, well, welcome everybody. Uh, We're glad that you are here. My name is Tim. I am the lead uh, teaching pastor here at Liquid Church, and I have a feeling I know why so many of you are with us this weekend. You are anxious to learn all about the dark secrets and mysteries behind that heavily hyped blockbuster summer film, X-Men 3, right? Maybe you're here for that. Raise a lot of questions. Is Wolverine really married? Is Mystique Mystique the sacred feminine? Just kidding, obviously. I I do want to welcome you to our message series, Unlocking the Da Vinci Code. And I want to extend a special welcome, especially to all the guests we have visiting with us for the first time today. Uh, Maybe if some of you haven't been in church for a long time, but reading the Da Vinci Code has prompted you to think about God or faith or your spiritual life, well, I'm delighted. We are thrilled as a church family that you're here with us. And I just want to commend you for taking the spiritual search seriously. A lot of people just, you know, just don't. So good for you. The Da Vinci Code is, as you know, a cultural phenomenon at this point. I'm getting a little bit of Da Vinci fatigue myself. You see one more magazine cover, you know, with that Mona Lisa staring out at me. Uh, But it has sold a staggering 60 million copies to date and has been translated into 44 languages. Now, to put that in perspective for you, you may have heard of a book called The Purpose Driven Life. That, too, is a New York Times bestseller. It's, in fact, the number one book in the religion and spirituality genre. And it has sold approximately 25 million copies. So get this, Da Vinci, a fictional novel about ancient religion, history, Jesus, and the Christian faith, is outpacing the number one bestseller in religion and spirituality genre at a pace of three to one. Can I ask, just a show of hands, how many of you have actually read The Da Vinci Code? How many of you have actually read that, okay? Good representation. It's estimated that about one-third of all Americans have read the novel. That's 100 million people. Now, many, how many of you have seen the movie? The movie. You saw the movie and you want your eight bucks back, right? <laughs> Maybe you agree with me. I enjoyed the book. It is a real page-turner. But the movie, eh, so-so. I found a little slow kind of plotting. Yet, in its opening weekend, it generated the second largest box office receipts for an opening weekend in the history of modern cinema. Why? What is it about this story that has so captured our cultural attention? Could it be the controversy? I think we're all familiar with the, with the fact that there's a major controversy at the heart of this story. What is the deal with Tom Hanks' long hair? What is this all? It's why, seriously, this story has generated some major controversy since its release because it introduces us in this mysterious world of conspiracy, of secret codes, and historical documents that have been allegedly hidden or suppressed for many centuries as the Christian church has existed. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the basic plot, I want to give you kind of a quick sketch of the basic premise. And perhaps the best way to do that is by displaying for you the central image at the heart of the book. Everyone know what this painting is? You can yell it out. Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. And it's a piece we all recognize, a familiar tableau, right? But Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, invites us to look closely. Because, he theorizes, there are hidden clues in this painting, as well as other pieces of famous art, that is trying to reveal an amazing secret to us. Now, we all know the main players around this table. You see Jesus Christ in the middle, and of course, surrounded by his 12 disciples. You've got six on the right, six on the left, kind of balanced. And you see them kind of clustered. Look at them in groups of three, right? And this is Da Vinci's rendering of the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples on Passover, just before Jesus was arrested by Roman officials and led away to be crucified. But if you look closely, you'll notice the pair of figures at the center of the portrait, Jesus Christ, and look at the individual on his right, that's your left. Well, if you look closely, let me zoom in here for an enhanced kind of rendering of this. You'll notice something a little bit unusual about this disciple, traditionally assumed to be the disciple named John. What do you notice? Well, perhaps the best way to put it is in the words of that immortal Aerosmith song, dude looks like a lady, right? Yeah. This individual with the flowing red hair, the delicately folded hands, and is that, is that the, a hint of a bosom? Is purported to be none other than, everyone... Mary Magdalene, all right. At least this is the premise. 
that's put forth by the character known as Lay Teabing. He's the main character in Dan Brown's novel, and he advances this fantastic theory that contrary to all widely accepted historical accounts, Jesus was married. I know, it's far-fetched, but look closely. In fact, Brown tells us, you'll see, and I'll be reading a number of excerpts from the actual primary text tonight, the Da Vinci Code, but Teabing actually says, he says, it's a matter of historical record that Jesus was married, and Da Vinci was certainly aware of the fact. The Last Supper practically shouts at the viewer that Jesus and Magdalene were a pair. Notice that Jesus and Magdalene are clothed as mirror images of one another. You see the two of them? Sure enough, look, their clothes are actually inverse colors. You see Jesus has, has a red tunic on, and she's, he's wearing a blue, uh, what is that thing called? Sash. No, he's not a beauty pageant, uh, you know. <laughs> The winner there, but he's got an outer garment that's blue. But look at Mary, or purportedly Mary. She's the inverse, kind of like yin and yang, right? Okay, ooh, what's happening here? Venturing into the more bizarre tea being said, note that Jesus and his bride appear to be joined at the hip and are leaning away from one another as if to create this clearly delineated negative space between them. And it's at this point in the novel that Sophie Nouveau, who's the lead female character, notices this indisputable V-shape at the vocal point of the painting. You see it? And this is the symbol that Robert Langdon, he's the Harvard professor and sophisticated symbologist, he explains is the ancient symbol for the chalice or the holy grail or the female womb. And this, he explains, is indisputable evidence of the secret message that da Vinci was trying to communicate to the entire world. Now, you trace the character's outlines, in fact, full, he notices, and you notice they form the letter M, which could stand for matrimonio or Mary Magdalene. Now, this is da Vinci's secret, Brown says, but it goes further, for not only were Jesus and Mary married, they actually had a child. The real cup or the chalice that, that held the blood of Christ was not a cup, but it was the womb of Mary Magdalene. And she, in fact, according to Brown, had a daughter named Sarah whose descendants may still be alive today. I don't know whether any of you saw the ABC special about this book, but they actually interviewed a Scottish guy who thinks he may be one of the descendants of Jesus. <laughs> you know, he's got like three teeth, you know, he's like, oh, I think I may be the guy. You know, he's one of the descendants. And legend has it that after Jesus' crucifixion, Mary and her daughter went to Gaul. That's in modern-day France where they established the Merovingian line of French royalty. Now, now, this dynasty, we're told, continues even today in the mysterious organization known as P.S., the Priory of Sion, the secret organization whose military wing is the Knights Templar. And members of that secret society have included such luminaries as da Vinci, Isaac Newton, Victor Hugo. And to this day, claims T. Bing, the remains of Mary Magdalene and the records that prove she was married to Jesus are guarded. They're shrouded in secrecy and mystery. But there's more. According to Brown, not only is Mary Magdalene Mrs. Jesus, but the book claims that Jesus actually intended for her to lead the Christian church after he was gone. But as you can see from the painting, Peter had a problem with that. Notice Peter next to him, right next to Mary right there. And he's kind of making a very cutting kind of thing, kind of at her throat. And notice over here in the corner, what's he hiding behind his back? Can anyone see that? A knife in his left hand. Oh, Peter was a naughty one. <laughs> now, all, all of this is theorized in contrast to the traditional understanding, actually, that da Vinci painted this at the climactic moment in the scriptural gospels when Jesus was announcing that one of his disciples would betray him, which accounts kind of for the look of shock and surprise on these guys over here, right? They're, they're kind of like, or on the right, perhaps you see James in shock. He's kind of he's going, who, who is it, Lord? Is it me? Who, who will betray you? Surely not I. And Peter, of course, hot-tempered man, as actually the Gospels depict him, leans in to declare his allegiance to Jesus. Maybe if you remember in the Gospels, he actually says, never, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you, Peter vows in Matthew 26. And that knife in his hand, perhaps a foreshadowing of how Peter would later cut off the ear of a Roman soldier, in trying to defend Jesus and keep him from being arrested, led away to crucifixion. But, but all of that, I don't know, is too, hmm, what's the word? Factual, right? That's the only the story we have in, oh, this Bible. See, there's another Bible 
But the Brown reveals this to us. The Gnostic Gospels or the lost or hidden Gospels that reveal to all of us the other side of the story. The one that the Christian church doesn't want the populace to learn. As T. Bing explains on page 259, he says, According to these unaltered Gospels, it was not Peter to whom Christ gave directions with which to establish the Christian church. It was Mary Magdalene. Sophie looked at him. You're saying the Christian church was to be carried on by a woman? That was the plan. Jesus was the original feminist. He intended for the future of his church to be in the hands of Mary Magdalene. In the novel purports, Peter had a problem with that. So therefore the church kind of slandered her, kind of debased her, said she was a prostitute, and cut her out of the role of leadership. Apparently the sexist church wanted a celibate male savior who would perpetuate a male rule. And thus the Da Vinci Code claims Christianity, all of this, is invented by the early church to suppress women and turn people away from the sacred feminine. In fact, the Roman emperor Constantine got on the act centuries later when he censured those alternative gospels and chose instead the four that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as the only gospels because they fit his agenda of male power. Now, the upshot of this theory is that Christianity is based on a big lie, or rather several big lies, As Sir Teabing sums up on page 243, almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is false. The book also asserts that Jesus wasn't even regarded as divine or as a son of God in the flesh until centuries after his death when Constantine suppressed those ancient documents that tell the real story, got some religious leaders together at the Council of Nicaea, and they cobbled together what we have today as the New Testament. So if the Da Vinci Code is to be believed, so here we go. If the Da Vinci Code is to be believed, then this New Testament Bible that I'm holding up is simply the result of a male-dominated leadership that invented Christianity in order to control the Roman Empire and suppress women. And if that's the truth, what are we doing here? According to Brown, it's even the greatest cover-up in human history. Now, here's the deal. If the Da Vinci Code were billed as just a novel... It actually would be an interesting read for conspiracy buffs who enjoy a speculative thriller. But what makes the book troublesome is that it purports to be based on facts. In fact, on the opening page of the book, Brown writes under the official heading, he says in bold face, you can see the letters there, fact, these words. All descriptions or artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. And so... You can see why the story is raising questions for a lot of people. Are there other ancient documents about Jesus besides what we have in the New Testament? Are they more reliable than than the Bible that we have, you know, in front of us that are in the pews here even tonight? Was Jesus married? Was there Mrs. Jesus? (laughs) Did they have a kid? Was Leonardo da Vinci part of a secret organization that knew about this? Do Do we know why the New Testament includes the books that it does? Was Jesus human or divine? And what was the Holy Grail really? And how much, how much time is this going to take for us to sort all this out? Well, there actually are real answers to these questions. And they are yes, no, 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 yes, who knows, and 25 minutes. So let's stand for closing prayer and, uh, and we'll get out of here, right? There are actually many questions that we, we won't have time to get into. Um, and a fair number uh, that this book raises that I'm, I'm certainly not smart enough to answer. There is a lot of mystery to the Christian faith. And we're not going to enter into art criticism or literary critique of Dan Brown's novel. But what I want to do in these moments is get into the main issue. And that is, does the Christian faith and our understanding of Jesus have a solid leg to stand on? I want to talk about this not for the sake of walking through information. But because this really is about deciding what we're going to build our lives on. If it doesn't result in our living the way that God intends our lives to be lived, if it, it, quite honestly, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but we want to build our lives on truth. And part of what that means is that this is going to be one of those messages where we go into the classroom kind of together, we roll up our sleeves and walk through a lot of material and do a lot of learning together. And I know that can be hard. So periodically tonight, I'm going to ask you if you're still with me. And I want you to answer yes. Even if you're still not with me, just say yes just for me, okay? <laughs> for no other reason. So here we go. Are you with me? Yes. Great. Now, tonight we're going to follow a Q&A format, just kind of based around the main questions raised by the novel. We'll touch on some of the basics tonight, 
And then in the following three Sundays, I'm going to take each issue we introduce and go farther into depth. And the first key question in my mind, and a lot of people, is this. How can we trust the veracity, that is the reliability, of scriptures? Were there other authentic sources or gospels that were discarded in the process? Now, this is, um, this is interesting because a quote from the novel, Teabing says, the Bible, quote, is a product of man, my dear, not of God. History has never had a definitive version of the book. This Bible, as we know it today, was collected, says Teabing, by the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great in 325 A.D. And so that questions the very integrity of this Bible that we kind of learn from each week, right? How do we get this scripture? How do we know we can actually trust it? Now, how many of you have actually attended Liquid um, as a church for a year or more? I'm going to ask you if you would. Okay, great. Those of you with your hands up, I want you to turn to the people next to you and explain to them exactly how we got the New Testament. I'll give you two minutes, okay? <laughs> you don't have to do that. But, but let me take a shot at it. I know if, if you're like me, it makes you feel like inadequate. Like, good question. <laughs> it just appeared in the pews, these books. I don't know. We read them. <laughs> and I want to begin with an admission that may shock or surprise you. The Bible did not drop out of the sky from heaven or arrive by divine facts. <laughs> oh, here it is. God got a word for it. In fact, the Bible itself records how Jesus would travel from place to place and he would teach. And his teaching would strike a chord with people. It changed lives. It did something extraordinary in people. That's why we call it the Gospels. It means good news. Consider the classic comments from the Gospel of John when when Roman guards tried to explain why they didn't arrest Jesus. They said this. They said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Of course, back then, people didn't have tape recorders, right? There weren't MP3 players. People didn't go, you know, to the Sermon on the Mount and get big notebooks that said Sermon on the Mount, and then fill in the blanks. Initially, Jesus' life and his teachings were not written down. They were passed on because they were remembered and told. Now, here's the deal. Honestly, I can't even remember the three things I go to ShopRite to get if they're not written down. I'm starting to hit that stage in life where sometimes I walk into a room in the house, and when I get there, I'm like, why am I here? (laughs) So you have to wonder, well, how could you remember things accurately if they weren't written down? Well, here's the deal. It's kind of an early learning fact for us. In the first century, when Jesus lived, people were living in an oral culture. Now, that's foreign to you and I, because we're used to being inundated by words, right? We get newspapers, stuff on the internet, emails, messages on our Blackberry, so on. But what percentage of people could read and write in the first century? There's a book called Excavating Jesus, and it's by a scholar by the name of John Dominic uh, Croissant. And he cites a study that says in the ancient Mediterranean basin, our best guess is that the literacy rate was about 5%. That's in Jesus' day. Specifically, in ancient Israel, where Jesus was, the best guess is that the literacy rate was 3%. That means that when Jesus was teaching people, probably only about three out of a hundred would have been able to actually read the Old Testament scriptures for themselves. At night, they did not sit around reading, and obviously they didn't sit around watching TV or playing Xbox. They sat around a fire, and they told stories, and they shared wise sayings. They would even recite genealogies or lists of family lines in order to keep them accurate. It was the way they got a sense of tribal identity. Now, we still have some remains of that today. I've got children, a little two-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl named Chase. Now, my daughter Chase, even though she's four years old, she loves to read. Well, she doesn't read herself yet, (laughs) but she loves stories, and she has a whole bookshelf full of favorites that she begs me to read her every night. You know, it's like the cat in the hat, Dora the Explorer. By the way, that does not rhyme, you know. She's like, Dora the Explorer, you know, like, no. Uh, Pooh and Tigger go on adventure, you know, InStyle magazine. What? That's my wife. <laughs> anyway, the point is, by far, her favorite book is this book. Does anyone recognize the cover of this book? Where the Wild Things Are. You remember this one? The night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind and another. It's about this little boy who sails this island where the wild things are. And he's made king of all the wild things and the monsters, and they have a wild rumpus in the forest. Now, we've read this book, Chase and I, my little girl is four years old. We've read it about, um, I'd say, uh, 987 times. And it's a delightful story, but truth be told, I grew tired of it, actually, after reading number 641. And so one night, when I was in a hurry, I decided I was going to skip a page or two. 
or maybe just a paragraph, and she won't notice as I read it before bed. Now, understand, this girl's four. She can't read. So I'm reading. I decide I'll start easy. I'll skip just a phrase or two here or there to speed up the process. And so I'm reading. I'm like, they roared their terrible roars, and they rolled their terrible eyes, and they crowned Max king of the wild things. And suddenly, Chase grabs my hand. I'm like, about to, she's like, no. She grabs my hand before I can turn the page. She says, no, Daddy. No skipping. <laughs> and I'm chastened, and I look at her innocently. I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean, sweetheart? And she goes, they roared their terrible roars. They gnashed their terrible teeth. They rolled their terrible eyes, and they showed their terrible claws. <laughs> there are teeth, and there are claws, Daddy. Don't forget. And I'm like, oh, sorry, sweetheart, I didn't mean to, you know, miss that line. And she looked at me sharply, and she said, I'll never forget this, she said, you've got to read every page, Daddy, every word. (laughs) Point. She knows the story by heart. Every page, every word, even though she can't read yet. She's a child of four. In Jesus' day, I want you to imagine a culture where that's all people knew. They were just as bright as we are, but most were not literate. Yet they knew the stories of Jesus' life and teachings by heart and were very well equipped to preserve them. That's what happens in an oral culture. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus tells so many stories in the Bible that we have. Scholars estimate, it's kind of interesting, do you know this? About 80% of what Jesus taught was either in story form or in a kind of structure called parables. It featured parallelism, stuff that doesn't quite rhyme, but it goes together, easy to remember, enabling people to remember what he said and then to repeat it. And that's how it went right in the years after Jesus' death, after his resurrection is returned to heaven. The apostles, or people who traveled with Jesus, they told the eyewitness accounts of his words and his deeds. And that's how they were preserved and encoded in the first few years of the early church. But here's the deal. After several decades of this, what do you think happened to the eyewitnesses? They began to die. (laughs) They began to age. And by this time, the Christian church was starting to rapidly expand. You can read about that in the book of Acts. That comes after the Gospels. And there were a lot of false teachers who could distort what Jesus taught. And church leaders recognized, we need to write down Jesus' story. Actually do it, scribe it, transcribe it, his life and his teachings, so that it will outlive us. And so that in a uniform way, it can be spread to churches around the world. That is most how likely and how the Gospels were written. And so the Gospels were here, that we have today, these four, were likely first recorded between 50 and 70 A.D. And they are authentic eyewitness accounts. And people knew the stories. They had heard them since they were little. And any attempt to add, delete, or alter them in some way would have been met with the harsh objection. No, every word, daddy. <laughs> okay, you get it? Jesus died in 30 A.D. approximately, and writing of them was about in the, in, the, in the 40 years that followed that. So they were eyewitness accounts, and that's when they were first transcribed. Now, over time, other documents about Jesus were written as people talked about him. Anytime you have somebody with that kind of cultural influence, worldwide influence, people kind of glom on like parasites. It be, you know, fact becomes kind of legend. And some of them wrote what we would call, maybe you've heard of them in the news, the Gnostic Gospels, or the Lost Gospels. Have you heard of them? Maybe you saw recently the Gospel of Judas, right? Was rolled out with an enormous amount of fanfare by National Geographic a, few, a couple months ago. And that's an example of a Gnostic or alternative Gospel. Gnosticism is kind of interesting. It's not anything too fancy, but it was a form of thought, loosely a form of religion, that emphasized that only a few people understood the secrets or the concealed information about God. And whether or not you were on the inside, part of the Illuminati or not, depended on whether you really knew God or were part of the select, okay? So the gospel is not for everybody, only a few people. It was actually a hybrid of Christianity and Greek philosophy. And these Gnostic gospels had stories in them about Jesus that were wildly divergent from the kinds of things that we read in the four New Testament gospels. And so the early church leaders realized that they'd have to have some sort of criteria that's going to help them decide which documents or which gospels should go into what later became known as the canon of Scripture. That's a great word for us to know. It actually comes from a Greek word that means the norm, the standard, or the rule. People wanted to know which books should we trust, which books ought to be canonical, 
Which books are reliable? And church leaders developed essentially three criteria to evaluate the different documents. And the first one was this. Does this document have roots connected to one of the apostles, the men who were with Jesus, who traveled with him, ate with him, and did everything with him? Was it eyewitness? Or was it written by an apostle or a student or associate of one of the apostles? The, the four gospels, obviously, that we have in the New Testament meet this requirement. Matthew, let's see. Let's see how much good of an antiquity scholar you are. Matthew was written by anyone? Matthew, good. <laughs> Also known as Levi the tax collector's historical man. He actually was a tax collector. Joined Jesus. His life was changed. Mark was a student of Peter, actually. And Luke was known as the beloved physician. He was actually a doctor. And so you'll see, notice that he uses a lot of details in his gospel that validate that this is a historical scientific claim. And, you know, John is the gospel connected to the disciple John. And by the way, by the way, just to backtrack, almost all modern art historians agree this is John the disciple who's sitting next to the right of Jesus in the Last Supper. Now, there's no doubt he looks effeminate, but that was consistent with the early practice of artists in Florence. They often distinguished young men from older men by making them beardless and with delicate features. John was the youngest of all disciples. That's a historical record. And that was standard practice, and it accounts for the kind of androgynous look of John. He was likely, possibly even in his teens, he was a young adult, the youngest disciple. Bruce Boucher of the Art Institute of Chicago, not a Christian, but just looked at and you know, held up as an academician in the art world, says, St. John was invariably represented as a beautiful young man. And the, you know, there's the obvious question even, if you want to entertain the Mary idea that this is Mary, with only 12 disciples with Jesus, if his one is Mary, where's John? There's not 13 people in the picture. It's hard to imagine him missing because the, the Gospels describe him as the one Jesus loved. Anyway, I digress, but the, the point is, these original Gospels were written by eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus, men who were his closest companions and spent hours and hours on the road traveling together, talking, eating, doing ministry together. And it's critical to understand what most scholars would agree, all these books were written within 30 to 60 years after Jesus died. In other words, they were written while other eyewitnesses were around who could challenge every word that was added or deleted from them. Every word, don't skip a line. They had to meet the task of being read by people who were alive and traveled with Jesus and could say, no, no, I was there, if something was inaccurate in them. So the Da Vinci Code talks about how there were many other books in, in Jesus' life and suggests that uh, maybe the early church was trying to cover them up. And in reality, all essentially all those books, those Gnostic Gospels, were, were, Gnostic Gospels, were actually written centuries after Jesus, after that eyewitness generation. And that actually is a fact. They were often given fictitious and misleading names, like the Gospel of, anyone know? Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Peter. Even though they were written centuries after Peter and Mary and Thomas had died. But the Gnostics, they said, hey, this is a good thing. Christianity's spreading. Maybe we can kind of harness on the back of that and get our message out. And so they wrote with the names of the people who were closest to Jesus. One thing is certain about the Gospel of Judas, for instance. I mean, it was not written by Judas. You will not find anybody, any academician or scholar, conservative or liberal, they are in agreement about that. This definitely was not written by Judas. So not only are these not first-hand historical accounts, they were written under pseudonyms, which is a major red flag when you're judging the integrity of any historical document. Someone who's writing it with someone else's name, signing it, what's up with that? They have an agenda. Now, the second criteria for gospel being included in the canon of Scripture is that the contents of the book had to be consistent with the kind of teaching that Jesus did. There's another account of Jesus' life that's also quite old. It was probably written about 50 years after the Gospel of John, after the New Testament Gospels. And some of you may have heard of the... Je How many of you have heard of the Jesus Seminar, actually? Ever hear that? It's a class. It's a group of modern-day people who get together and vote on whether Jesus said most of the things that are attributed to him in the Bible. They've argued that the Gospel of Thomas ought to be taken more seriously. He should be in there, not Luke. Here's one of the reasons why it wasn't. I want to read for you the very last part of the Gospel of Thomas. I went into this this week. Here's the exact quote from it. You decide how consistent this is with the teachings of Jesus. Simon Peter said, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, No, take it easy, Peter. I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Aren't you glad that this book didn't make it into the Bible? Doesn't that sound a little weird? 
This is an example of a Gnostic Gospels. And, and these lost Gospels are notable because Gnostics said physical matter, our bodies, are evil. And therefore, they believed God could not have become human. And so the ultimate goal was for the spirit to transcend this body in this earthly world. And so Gnosticism, it devalued the physical life. And ironically, as this direct statement shows, devalued women in particular. Now, we're going to dig into that issue about what the church says about women historically and what the scriptures say and what the Gnostics say in more detail next week because it really deserves its own attention. But it leads to this third criteria that was generally applied then to any of these, these books under consideration. In order for a book to be included in the canon, it had to have widespread influence in churches in Israel, in Asia Minor, in Rome, and so on, and had to have continuous acceptance and use by the church at large. Now, it took some time. And there were a few books where the, very, the, the decision was very, very difficult. But the Gospels and other books that are included in this New Testament are the ones that fit these three standards. One historian puts it like this. None of the Gnostic Gospels comes close in the date of composition, close to Jesus' life, the breadth of its distribution, not just a cult or a little few sect of a people, but actually widespread acceptance. And, and none of them, or proportion of acceptance, none of them comes close. So the idea that we have the New Testament Gospels today because like Constantine, this Roman emperor, put them together in 325 A.D. for political purposes way off mark. The reality is that by 325 A.D., when the church councils were pulled together to talk about the important questions, in a sense, what they were doing was formally recognizing the widespread authority of these Gospels that they already had and they had been guiding followers of Christ for centuries. There's a lot of evidence of this. More than 100 years before Constantine, a man by the name of Origen, he's one of the earliest church fathers, said, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are the only undisputed ones in the whole church of God throughout the whole world. This is 100 years before Constantine called the Council of Nicaea. That's followed and echoed to the modern day, actually, by a man named William Barclay from Edinburgh. He's a wonderful New Testament scholar, and he wrote, it is the simple truth to say that the New Testament books became canonical, because nobody could stop them from doing so. They had that power, they had that authenticity, and they had that widespread acceptance to them. Now, the second key question kind of raised by the novel is triggered by this statement, actually, on page 240. I kind of carved this one out, too. It says, until 325 A.D., Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man, nonetheless, a mortal. You know what that means? Dan Brown's novel goes on to assert that it wasn't until that year of 325 that the church established that Jesus was actually the literal Son of God, that he was, had the, the divinity and the equality of the Son in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so this claim kind of begs this question. Is it true that nobody believed Jesus was divine until 300 years after his death? I mean, if that is the case, it's kind of like, whoa. I mean, since you were born, you've been hearing about Jesus as the Son of God, but... What if 300 years passed in between there? Yeah, is it kind of like just a legend? The Da Vinci Code essentially says that the first century church knew that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. But they wanted to cover it up because it was revealed that Jesus was only human and not God in the flesh. And they wanted people to think that he was divine, even though they knew he wasn't. And so according to the Da Vinci Code, any gospels that describe earthly aspects of Jesus' life had to be omitted from the gospels. What was included in the New Testament? Now, this seems kind of ironic to me, because if you read the Gospels, if you read actually any of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they speak extremely in great detail about the earthly aspects of Jesus' real life all the time. Now, think about it. What we celebrate at Christmas is the fact that Jesus was born in a manger, in a stable, as a baby. And he was a real baby who really did go through a natural birth process. It's described in the Gospels. Now, sometimes at Christmas, you know, that we sing a, a carol that says, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That's not scriptural. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a non-crying baby? Jesus was not a non-crying baby. The Gospels are not sanitized. He was one of those babies who cries because that's the only kind there is. <laughs> and when he grew to be a man, he wept real tears. And the Bible records that. He cried when he learned a close friend of his had died. He got hungry, just like we do, and he had to eat. He got thirsty, just like we do, and he had to drink. In fact, that's one of his last requests, according to John, as he hung on the cross. 
He actually, when the thorns pierced his brow, they pierced real skin. They drew real blood and caused real pain. In fact, part of the story story of this is that the the later non-eyewitness Gnostic accounts of Jesus' life that give the wildest stories in them and that make Jesus look the least human. For instance, in one of them, check this out from the Gnostic Gospels. Jesus, as a boy, actually makes some pigeons out of clay. He says some magical words, and the pigeons turn into real birds and fly away. Kind of like that guy from Arrested Development. Check that out. In another Gnostic account, when the boy Jesus gets into a fight with another boy, Jesus curses the other kid, and he dies. He uses his divine power to cause destruction and human harm, which is wildly out of step with every historical eyewitness account of Jesus' life. In another story, after the crucifixion, check this out. After Jesus comes out of the tomb, he's actually really big, as big as Paul Bunyan. Huge, (laughs) mega Jesus. And after he comes out of the tomb, the cross comes out of the tomb. And the cross starts talking. It's a talking cross, okay? This is like Veggie Tales Gone Bad. Like a bad Disney video. These are actual stories recorded in the Gnostic Gospels, okay? They're not hard to find. Put plainly, folks, these Gospels paint Jesus as more of a two-bit magician than the mighty creator of the universe. Folks, when Jesus performed miracles, they were not to show off or to wow the crowds. Most of the time, the miracles performed by Jesus were to make one thundering statement, that Jesus truly was claiming to be the only son of the living God. That claim by Jesus to be divine, to be God in the flesh, is so incontrovertible. As almost everything Jesus historically said or did, it points in this direction. For example, think of one of his most famous miracles that whether you're church or not, you've probably heard of it. Jesus walking on the what? Water. I mean, why not fly or turn himself into a talking alligator, right? Here's the reason. It's found actually in the book of Job, chapter 9, verse 8. He, God alone, stretches out the heavens and he treads on the waves of the sea. Now, this is a verse from the Old Testament. And it would have been common knowledge to Jesus' first century Jewish audience. God alone treads the seas. They believe that. So when Jesus chooses to walk on water, it's not simply a demonstration of power or a trick. It's an announcement. You're looking at him. I am God. This is an object lesson, not a carnival show. Conversely, if you are trying to avoid being given the label of God, this is about the last thing you'd attempt to do. Neither would you make a statement such as this. In the Gospel of John, the disciple uh, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus claimed from top to bottom not only to be the only Son of God, but to be equal with his Father in every respect. And that's, in effect, what the Council of Nicaea confirmed in 325 AD. That Jesus was not only divine, that was established by his words and deeds, but that he was co-eternal with God the Father. Distinct but equal personalities who've existed forever and breathed the rest of creation into existence. In fact, if there was anything ambiguous about what Jesus was claiming about himself, his enemies certainly didn't think so. John 10.33 records these words. We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews to Jesus, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They understood exactly what Jesus was claiming, and his enemies hated him for it, and it's what got him killed. It's also beyond doubt that the disciples and early Christians from the very beginning held his deity as a, as a you know, maybe a, a belief or not. The Apostle Paul actually penned these hard-to-misinterpret words. He said, for in Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. Later, Paul writes actually in his letter to the Colossians, he says, He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven And on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created by him and for him. Now, you've got to understand, for a first century Jewish man committed to monotheism to write these words, this is a staggering statement. It would have been scandalous in the first century. In this passage, the Apostle Paul says Jesus is the image of God, the icon, his exact representation, and goes on to identify him as actually the creator, capital C, Not just like a mirror image. It's vital to realize Paul's letters were written only a few decades after Christ's death. 
And it's funny because when you read actually Paul's letters, they don't flow so much like prose, like the Gospels, and it's because it's not. Quoted all throughout Paul's New Testament letters are creeds. You know what a creed is? A statement of beliefs. This is actually part of a creed, which predates the letter itself and was formulated within the first few years after Jesus' death. And these creeds that we still say today are, are what define the earliest Christian community, that, what they held to be true about Jesus. And being the Son of God, equal to God, co-eternal with God, that is central to them. It's interesting. Every now and then, you know, something comes along that's difficult for us humans to classify. We've got boxes, and we like to put things in boxes. It's kind of bizarre, for example, that a whale is classified as a mammal, right? You're like, should be a fish. Something that lives its life in the ocean should not wear the label of mammal, right? In the world of religious leaders... Jesus is a whale. He's often lumped into the same phylum with other great religious leaders like Moses or Muhammad or Buddha, but frankly, he doesn't fit. On the surface, he looks like a fish, right? He's this kind of wonderful religious leader, and there have been many of them, who've helped shape the world of faith and morals. Now, he taught and claimed something that, when analyzed, makes him a different species altogether. He claimed to be God in the flesh. You may have heard the name of C.S. Lewis before. He's one of the most brilliant literary minds of the 20th century. He was the author of Chronicles of Narnia, maybe you heard him. And tomes of, of countless scholarly, you know, books of higher criticism and academic thought. Well, C.S. Lewis, the famed Oxford professor, he's a former agnostic, he presented the dilemma of Jesus' claims this way. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God. Or else a madman. Or something worse. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lunatic or Lord? In the Gospel of Matthew, written in the era of eyewitnesses, Jesus asks Simon Peter, the, picture, the guy who's discipled in, in, the, in Da Vinci's fresco with a knife, he asks him a probing question. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus does not respond to Peter by saying, no, 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 no. You got it wrong. I'm just a man like you. I'm trying to point to it. No. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. That, my friends, is a fact. It's not fiction. It's actually a matter of historical record that many of the first century followers of Jesus, in the end, were martyred or put to death for their faith. And to me, trying to say that they knew Jesus was only mortal, he was married, but we want to really cover it up, and were willing to suffer and die for what we know is actually a big lie, that's the biggest leap of faith of all. Really brings us to key question number three, but we're out of time, okay? I guess you'll have to come back next week and answer this question. Was Christianity, as presented in the New Testament, an attempt by men to gain control over women? It's one of the main ideas, actually, that's presented in the Da Vinci Code. And it does deserve a special message all its own. Women have been marginalized by the church. We're not going to flinch or or try to make excuses for that. But women played a crucial role in Jesus' ministry, as we'll see. And in the formation of his early church as well. I'm afraid that actually neither Dan Brown's novel... (laughs) nor the Christian church at times have given women the credit and the place of respect and high honor that Jesus afforded them. I'm actually calling this one cover-ups and controversy, Jesus and the women he loved. But you'll have to come back next Sunday for that. So are you with me on that? Right. So in the end, the question, right, is the Da Vinci Code a matter of faith, fact, or fiction? I mean, it's certainly labeled fiction, right? That's the aisle it's found in at Borders or Barnes & Noble. Here's the question. Is it good history? Is this good history? Because if this is good history, 
then this stands on shaky ground. I want to say this about this, this book. The Da Vinci Code is a work of fiction to be enjoyed as such. I was a literature uh, undergrad, and uh, I loved reading. And this, I, I really enjoyed this, this book. It really was a page-turner. It's a great, you know, kind of keeps you up at night. But part of it means, as a work of fiction, there are no footnotes. It doesn't have to go through the rigorous process of actually review. There's no apparatus for accountability to a scholarly community. And that means that as history, there are a lot of problems. It would be hard to pick more information, actually, about Jesus in the Bible in a shorter space than this novel does in its basic narrative. It's a compelling read, no doubt, but the real-life person who wrote, who, who it speaks of, I believe, is even more compelling. In summary, I think we can say this. You know what? This book, it did a great thing. It got a lot of people talking, and that's a really good thing. It got a lot of po- people reading, and that's a really, really good thing. And it got a lot of people thinking about God and faith, and that, friends, is a vital thing. As a page-turner, as a mystery, it's engaged a lot of people, but as history, well, one academician put it like this. He said, it's the only book I know that after you've read it, you're dumber than you were when you started. (laughs) The reason, folks, it matters to us is this. Our faith, the Christian faith, is rooted in history. And the reason we take this time, the reason I invite you to wade through all this material with me tonight is because we believe that the Christian faith is not just a pretty story that can add some nice metaphorical understanding to life, but that God actually entered human history in flesh and blood in the man of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John put it like this in the opening words of 1 John. He wrote, From the very first day, we were there taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. We verified it with our own hands. We saw it. We heard it. Now we're telling you so that you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. In this modern paraphrase of ancient scripture, John, that young disciple Jesus loved, he in essence says, this really happened. This is not a myth. This is not a pretty story. I was there. I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. I knew him. And I'm willing to rot in prison and die for him. Which John did. So you check it out. You investigate it thoroughly. You decide one way or the other. You go ahead and you do that. But just don't say that this claims to be another pretty story. You can't say that all faiths are simply fabrications, and everyone understands that. They all say the same thing and don't really relate to anything historical that happened at some factual point in time. Don't say that. You can't. You can't say Jesus was just a man and, you know, a really good teacher. He was an inspiration, but that's it. An inspirational leader who got hijacked by politics. Don't say that because John says, I was there. I saw him. I followed him. I watched him. I know him. And I'm writing these things so that you can know him too. I'll tell you one final way that you can know about the authenticity of the New Testament Gospels. I'm going to invite you to read them and see what happens to you. Last week at Liquid, we heard from a friend of our church, a young man by the name of uh, Scott Harrison. He's a photojournalist. He's actually only 30 years old. This is his picture. He's the, guy, he's the white guy right there uh, next to this young, young boy here whose name is Alfred. That boy in the photo next to him, Alfred, actually Scott met him in the poorest section of Africa while he was working on a Christian hospital ship, a ship that goes up and down the African coast in Jesus' name, providing medical care to the world's poorest and the most forgotten. And Scott was here last week showing us what he's given his life to. And as you can see from this photo, when Scott met him, Alfred needed some help. That's him on the left. And that is a massive facial tumor over the size of two grapefruits. And it was making his life one of tremendous misery and suffering and actually slowly asphyxiating him to death. And Scott, when he became a Christian, said, what am I going to give my life to? And he left his job as actually a club promoter in in New York City and actually joined Mercy Ships And he traveled there to Africa on his own dime. They don't actually get paid. And he traveled there to reach out and serve children like Alfred, who the world has forgotten. And as you can see, they performed an amazing surgery on him that has changed his life and put him back into wholeness. Most significantly, Scott left his job in New York City and he traveled to go serve and be with Alfred because of one name. 
in the name of Jesus Christ. And when I saw this picture last week, it made me think about how for two millennia now, thousands of years, people have read in this book, this Bible, about a Jesus who would embrace and touch and love broken people. People who were blind, people who were crippled, many of them who were mute. In fact, Jesus touched lepers, physical outcasts that nobody else would touch with a 10-foot pole. And people reading these historical accounts would say, I want to know that man. I want to follow that man. And if possible, I want to become like that man. I'd like to do the kinds of things that he actually did. I'd like to live the kind of life that he lived. That's what happened, actually, to my friend Scott. He met the real Jesus in the pages of this Bible, and something happened to him. His self-centered life was turned upside down, and he discovered that there was actually real truth in Jesus' words, that anyone who's interested in finding real life must first be willing to lose theirs. It has happened to millions of people in hundreds of cultures for thousands of years, and this is a matter of historical record. He gives people new life, new purpose, and it can happen to you. This week, I'd like to actually invite you just to sit down with one of the Gospels, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, first four books here. Maybe you've walked with God a long time, or maybe you're just beginning your search. I want you to just sit down and read. Maybe just like the first three chapters, let's say, of the book of John. It records the historical record of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I want you to re- invite you to read it with an open mind and an open heart. And just ask Jesus if he'd reveal himself to you in a new way. With what happened to millions of people in hundreds of cultures over thousands of years, it can happen to you too. Because he is real. He really is. And that's a fact. Let's pray together. Jesus, we want to thank you that you aren't some remote ancient deity or man-made myth. We, we pray to you because we believe you're alive today. We believe that you're actually watching over us and caring for us as God of the universe. And we just thank you that you have invited every man, every woman into belief into putting their trust and their confidence in your deeds, Lord, in your death and in your resurrection into historical fact. Fact is, Lord, you came to this earth and gave your life for ours. I want to thank you for being a God of love, of compassion and truth. We'll just ask tonight that this week you draw each person here closer to you. Do it by your spirit, Lord. Actually enable them to take the next step in their spiritual journey. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.